Estate Coaching Radio, America's number one trusted resource for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Starring award-winning real estate coaches Tim and Julie Harris. Get ready for unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what is truly working to get you into action and make you money in this new real estate boom. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. We're joined once again by Jonathan Smoke, the Chief Economist for Realtor.com, to discuss current trends in today's real estate marketplace as we enter into the spring 2016 selling season. Smoke is a 20-year veteran of the real estate industry and a regular guest on Real Estate Coaching Radio who has established himself in the real estate industry as a highly respected economist and strategic thinker. Now, let's welcome Jonathan to the call as we join our host, Tim Harris. So, Mr. Smoke, thank you and welcome back. And um, I know you're extremely busy. Um, And one of the reasons that, in addition to all the normal reasons that we have you on the show, but one of the reasons specifically I wanted to have you back is because we are seeing an increase in agents who are becoming, I think, maybe a little bit overly cautious um, about the economy. A lot of agents asking us about interest rates, asking us about if we're going to another recession, and all of this. And so, you know, I assume that because we have 100,000 normal listeners, there's probably tens of thousands of agents that are listening that are also kind of working through the same fears. So if you and I can deep dive in clearing the air about the fact that this is a really wonderful, incredible opportunity to be selling real estate, we are really at one of the best times ever to be in the real estate industry, I think we'll call this a successful show. Agreed? All right. Agreed. So and let's glad just to be jump back. right to the heart of oh, of course, thank you. So let's just jump right to the heart of it. Um, is there any reason to believe that we're going into another housing-related recession? Uh, well, I'll, I'll give you the quick answer to that, and that is no. I think the recession word is way overblown, uh, more sort of in political circles uh, than in uh, reality circles. And if you look at the fundamentals uh, for the U.S. economy and for the housing market, we've actually started 2016 Uh, on a very good foot, Uh, growth over last year uh, in most of the key metrics. And uh, so as a result, uh, myself, but I would say I've yet to run into a forecast that has anything but growth expected uh, for 2016, uh, both in terms of prices and in transactions. Uh, Now, of course, at a local level, uh, there are some differing trends that are impacting some places, um, you know, less than others. Uh, but net-net, this should be the best year that we've had since 2006. Uh, and I think, if anything, uh, it could be uh, – It's more likely we're more likely to be wrong on the upside uh, than on the downside. So, in other words, you and I are being too conservative with our expectations for this year uh, and that people will probably experience more opportunity uh, than they're expecting. And, guys, here's the thing. If your mindset is to be a skeptic, if your mindset is to be pessimistic, if your mindset is that, you know, the wheels are going to fall off the wagon, then guess what? You're not going to take the actions necessary to, um, you know, be successful. You're going to actually start behaving in such a way that your mindset becomes your actual reality. And you've got to be very conscious of that. You got to be. If you think that things are going to be good, you're going to do things that are going to make that a reality. If you think things are going to be bad, you're going to do things that, guess what, make that a reality. And so, Jonathan, I'm. You know, you're the guy that brings this, the facts, the statistics. So let's drill down on all of this. You said something. Okay. I'm going to ask you about this again. Are there any signs whatsoever? <laughs> you know, in the house, because they're the biggest skeptics out there listening, right? 
any signs whatsoever that there's going to be any kind of slowdown or any kind of second half crash, anything like that you've seen red at all anywhere? So let, let's quickly go through the, the fundamentals and the key factors that, that drive the housing market. Uh, first and foremost is the economy and, and you know, most directly uh, the employment sector, and job creation remains extremely strong. Uh, we got the data for February uh, a little over a week ago, and we are uh, well above trend. Uh, 242,000 jobs created in February, which is higher than the average we, we received monthly last year uh, and uh, is above average for what we've seen so far in the recovery. So there are no signs that uh, job creation is uh, slowing down. And, of course, household formation follows job creation, and we're in a very good rhythm uh, from that perspective. And in addition to that, I, I would argue to point to the demographics, which somewhat worked against us uh, dur during the last decade, but we're now at an inflection point where the two largest generations in history are essentially uh, in prime real estate years uh, in terms of driving transactions. We've got the oldest millennials, which represent the biggest uh, population cohort. Uh, they were the largest buying cohort for the last two years. The uh, NAR just released their annual generational report this morning and confirmed that. And at the same time, we have the very oldest boomers, who until the millennials were the biggest generation, uh, finally reaching uh, the key 65-plus mark. And I've been observing that 65 is the new 55, and, and that's really the inflection point that we're seeing people make decisions about retirement. And uh, as a result, we've got strong uh, pipeline, a stronger pipeline for supply than we've had in recent years because of the millennials. Uh, and then demand is certainly strengthened in the first-time sector. That's, that's really where about half of last year's growth came from, and it's going to continue to come. Um, so... The drivers of demand look good. Now let's look at a few of the other factors. Supply has clearly been an issue. I would argue that supply and credit are probably our two biggest factors over the last year that have held us back. And we're at four months of supply nationally in January. Uh, that marks 41 straight months of that condition. Um, so we will continue to deal with that. Uh, we, we actually observed at listings on Realtor.com increasing in February, uh, just like they should. Uh, however, ironically, at the same time on the supply side, we saw the median days on market decline four days uh, nationally in February, uh, and that's a sign that demand is growing faster than supply again. Uh, and you know that that always uh, is is really a positive for the market. And it's important to note that that sort of change usually happens in March or April, and this year it started in February. And I think that's a really good sign that part of the demand today essentially is not being influenced at all by the negative rhetoric in the news or uh, what happened with the stock market in January and February because they essentially were trying to buy last year and couldn't succeed in doing it. Uh, so they've hit the ground running in January and February uh, of this year. So we've got more than enough pent-up demand um, to keep keep the markets hot, keep inventory moving. And on the supply side, if anything, uh, it's just praying for uh, more sellers uh, to, be, to be encouraged to list. Uh, we're also seeing new construction grow, so that will help alleviate some of it, but not enough to cause any sort of uh, supply problem. 
Um, and then I mentioned credit. Credit has been holding us back. It's still tight. Uh, it's not changing all that much on a year-over-year basis, so it is truly still a very difficult time to qualify for a mortgage. But the reality is the economy has been improving the conditions of households so much uh, over the last couple of years that we have more than enough households with increases in incomes, uh, with better credit scores, uh, and being in that position in life that, that buying and selling a house is appropriate for them, that uh, there's more than enough demand coming from uh, that, that group. group. Uh, then we've got a, a few other factors that I would point to that I think are important to this discussion. Uh, one is that you can pretty much close the book on the foreclosure crisis. Uh, we had the last few places in the country that we're still de- dealing with um, foreclosure backlog because they take longer to process them in places like Florida, New Jersey, New York, uh, and Illinois. And so we've really seen um, the end of, those, of that significant discounting coming from the distressed side. And as a result, that's adding even uh, more upside pressure uh, to prices. But it does mean that if you've been selling to an investor market, uh, that part of the market uh, is is declining. Um, and then finally, there there is weakness. There has been weakness for roughly the last four to five months in two sectors that principally impact uh, the highest price points. Uh, so we've we've seen the luxury market slow down in most places in the country, and that was pretty tightly correlated to uh, the stock market fluctuations we had last August and September, and then again again in uh, January and February. And we've also seen a pretty substantial decline in foreign buyers uh, year over year, and that's a combination of, of weakness in other countries, but also the strong appreciation of the dollar. Uh, just one reference point, if you're in Canada and you're using the loonie and you're trying to buy a property in the in the U.S., it, it's costing about 30% more today because of the appreciation of the dollar uh, relative to the Canadian loonie. So uh, there is there is weakness in some places, um, but it's it's more at higher price points, and it's being more than offset in the growth in what I would say the traditional distribution of buyers should look like. Uh, meaning we're we're seeing solid growth in the first-time buyer. We're finally seeing the millennials uh, have an impact uh, in, in the market, and so the whole ecosystem is is getting better, uh, and and that should mean you know more health throughout, and it should mean that those uh, retiring boomers are in a good position to be able to sell their home, buy their next home, and and provide the supply at the time that uh, the millennials are looking for it. Let's go back to the demographic thing you said, because I think really that's the most important thing, and people need to be clear about that. So when you go back to past housing booms, let's say the one that you know people still, some of them are licking their wounds over, that market really wasn't being driven primarily, or maybe it was. You correct me if I'm wrong. But that, that market wasn't really a uh, answer to demographic trends, right? It seems like that no. market was more about investing and more about opportunism and more about people making money. So we're on the same page there, Yes. I would underscore it as it was the opposite of demographics because that was the time for Gen X. And, uh, you know, I think you and I are card-carrying members of the Gen X generation. Uh, hey, I turned <laughs> turn 46 today, so I am. <laughs> we are the, well, we, were the, we are the valley of the shadow of death from a demographic perspective. Um, we are nice. tiny compared to the generations on either side of us. And so, ironically, right when we were in those prime 
uh, home buying years, we actually probably should have seen a decline, but instead we essentially had speculation driven by very loose credit um, that essentially created the, you know, the, the peak of the activity that we saw back in 2004, 5, and 6. And so, well, no, it was, it was well, different factors, and those factors are not present today. That's right. And so you said something that's really important, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the economist, not me, but if we have a visualization of a triangle, and that you divide that triangle into three halves. Again, Jonathan, I'm not an expert. You just correct me if I say anything dumb. You don't need to worry about hurting my feelings because it's my birthday. Don't worry about it. So you divide that triangle into three halves, with the smallest half being the top part of the triangle, and each of these little you know sections of the triangle represent uh, the people call them the waves of the baby boomers. In other words, the smallest group of the baby boomers are the ones reaching retirement age now. And then as the years progress, there's actually more of them by an enormous number. And the same holds true with the millennials. The smallest group of the millennials, again, correct me if I'm wrong, are the ones that are basically in the family formation buying and selling mode. And as years progress, there actually is more of them. Are those two statements true? Absolutely true. And that means we've got 10 to 15 years where demographics are going to be essentially causing this market to grow even more rapidly from a demand perspective. So if you guys want to study this, uh, I I mean, you know, I nerd out on this stuff. I think it's interesting. And maybe we can give some book suggestions. One of the w- books that I read, uh, or the authors I follow, I, you probably are reading my mind, is Harry S. Dent. He's really written some fabulous books about um, essentially predicting economic trends based on demographics. It's kind of, when you think about it, it seems logical. Well, guess what? When there's literally millions of people entering into the housing market to either downsize baby boomers or to you know, buy homes, millennials, you're probably going to have a pretty good overall economy because housing you know, outside of government spending is one of the biggest um, you know, uh, effects on the GDP. So people buy houses and they buy all the other stuff that goes with houses. So when we say on this radio show, and all of you guys listen to us say this on a regular basis, that we are really at the beginning stages of what's going to probably be the best 10 to 15 years of your careers, it's for real. You're listening now to Jonathan, who's giving us the actual background statistical demographic information on it. And so believe it. So take actions around the concept that you know you are literally in the right, uh, right place at the right time. Now just take the right actions. Um, you know, here's the other thing that's interesting. I wrote this question down. What were what trends are coming to an end? Like you mentioned international buyers. I noticed that happening about a year ago with our highest end clients. They're starting to tell less stories about, you know, the Russians and the Chinese. Um is are you seeing any other interesting trends that are changing some say from the past 12 months? Uh so so definitely the 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 kind of decline of the foreign buyer and quite honestly it's really a return to normal. It's not like they're completely going away. They just uh, kind of were overrepresented uh, for, for many years. Uh, I mentioned the foreclosure, the, the end of the foreclosure crisis chapter. Uh, so the entire kind of ecosystem that fed off of that uh, is also changing fairly dramatically. And so you're not seeing as much of an appetite for, from any sort of investor to buy anymore because they can't buy homes uh, at the same kind of discount. Uh, and then I would say there's a third trend that may not be so obvious with people today, but I would say uh, demographics and uh, the, just coming out of the housing crisis really shifted things towards renting being popular and cool and uh, and the appropriate thing for, for many folks to consider to do. 
And I would argue that because of rents now being, uh, in most places in the country, uh, even less affordable than uh, than owning, uh, you're starting to see a real sea change in attitudes, especially by uh, younger people, to realize that uh, actually they think real estate has the, the most potential returns uh, for their lifetime, and, they, and it also provides, of course, a, a quality of life that they can't uh, usually get in the rental market on an affordable basis for the long term. Uh, and so as a result, I think we're seeing a real shift. And the data that no one is talking about is that the last two quarters of 2015, the homeownership rate actually increased. And there are quote-unquote experts out there that were claiming that the homeownership rate was going to be in free fall for another decade, and yet we've already seen that it may have already passed its bottom. Uh, so uh, that's the that's the third megatrend that I would I would point to. And there was an interesting article um, you probably saw it this morning. It's old news, but it's still interesting that the millennials are hey, guess what? Wanting to move to the suburbs, you know? They're not just <laughs> wanting to live in these sort of like communal places in the in, in urban environments. They actually want to have backyards for their kids. They want to have, you know, what they had when they were growing up. Big news there, right? It's very highly, you know, all this is very predictable. But let's talk about. Um, Migration. So, in the country, the areas that have been the play, you know, the what was it, Mayflower van lines? I think they have the annual report where they talk about the states that have the people, the most people moving in versus moving out. Are you, are there any changes in those trends, or are the areas that are growing now going to continue growing? Are there new area, any new areas in the country that you see boiling up as being a potential like long-term mega metropolises or even mini metropolises that maybe people aren't paying attention to? So, yeah, they, they fall in a couple of different categories. There there are places that sort of represent the poster children for for uh, high-income job creation. Uh, so it's, that's principally been the West Coast, California in particular, and most notably Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. Uh, those places continue to crank out jobs, but they're starting to be substantially challenged by affordability uh, and the constraints on construction and development there that essentially make it so that um, the, you're never going to change that formula, meaning if you've decided to pack up your bags and, and, and go to San Francisco, you're going to be signing up for a very expensive uh, place to live. And so as a result, you're starting to see not just people but employers uh, migrate to other locations that offer um, you know, a better, um, more affordable lifestyle and so you're seeing job creations, uh, tech-related tech jobs that produce high-paying uh, jobs in, in most of the major markets in the country. Um, and so we're, I'm observing the fact that, you know, first you had places like Austin, Texas, and Dallas, and Denver become alternative uh, kind of tech center locations. But now that is extending uh, into places that never get press about being uh, glamorous, but Madison, Wisconsin, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, they all have sectors in the business and professional services side that have been growing pretty substantially, and I would argue that affordability is starting to be a plus. So uh, the, the things that, that used to work against the Midwest and the South are, are actually starting to be uh, positives, and uh, you know, I think we're, we're on the cusp of seeing young people make decisions to – maybe stay near where they grew up or to stay near where they went to college. And so as a result, uh, you've really got more high-growth areas than, uh, than we've necessarily had in the past. 
Uh, and I would argue we're, go- we're looking at a renaissance uh, in the Midwest um, because basically the Midwest missed out on the housing boom completely, uh, and, and uh, there are many major markets in the Midwest that are just now experiencing significant inward migration and population growth that they haven't seen in quite a while. That wouldn't surprise me, what you just said at all. You know, it's funny. You said they missed out. So Julie and I are from Columbus, Ohio. We have a bunch of, you know, obviously clients and friends and family. And, yeah, you're right, missed out on the housing boom. But guess what? Paid the price for the housing bust. You know, they didn't get any of the upside, but they they suffered the pain. And at the same time, it is kind of interesting. You you mentioned Austin, and Julie and I just live north of Austin. And there's properties that are now downtown Austin that are selling for, like, the same cost per square foot as California, uh, you know, close to $1,000 a square foot. That's kind of, you know, kind of interesting because, yeah, Columbus, Ohio, you can buy a really fantastic house in every bit as nice as anything you can buy in Austin for the same, if not less, money. And at some point, employers are going to start looking at all that and questioning their sanity. You know, how much more do we have to pay employees? How much harder is it to actually set up shop? How much more does commercial real estate cost? You know, it used to be people would say, well, I'm going to move. Well, I certainly said this, but people were going to say, I'm going to move from the snowy, snowy climates to, you know, a place where it's warm 12 months of the year. But guess what? If it's warm 12 months of the year, but you have to work 24-7 to be able to afford to live there, <laughs> it kind of doesn't work. You, you're missing the snow in, the, in more leisurely hours. So, yeah, long term, it, it, that's what's – you also said something else that was very interesting. Statistically, and I have to research this to remember the exact number, but something like 98% of everyone is you know, born and dies within like a 25-mile radius of the same exact spot. And it's pretty, I think – you know, it, it, it's not a big surprise or shouldn't be that the millennials are going to follow the same trend. They're going to want to live around where they grow up, and it all makes sense. I mean, so if you guys are trying to think about, well, where, how do I uh, put my business, my, you know, because you guys, all of you listening are individual entrepreneurs, you own your own business, even if you're an agent at a brokerage, guess what, you're still a business owner. If you're thinking about how should I position myself going forward, listen to what Jonathan is saying. Chances are, in your own immediate market, there's tons of opportunity. Look at your like. So, Jonathan, if where would be a market like if you were an agent, or when you're looking at the numbers, where you might say to yourself, "Well, that's probably not going to be the greatest place to overinvest over the next, say, ten years." What type of market would be maybe something that wouldn't be something that would be the best type of you know environment to find yourself in, real estate wise? Uh, I would say the places that worry me the most are the kind of outer rings of the suburbs uh, in in most major markets. The place, the places where our generation and older generations essentially kept increasing their commute to, uh, in in order to afford bigger and uh, and better spaces. And the reason that I'm concerned about it is that's principally where most of the baby boomers live today. Uh, and it's in some of those locations that there could be disconnect over the long term with when they're ready to downsize or move to uh, a retirement community somewhere, an active adult community, that sort of thing. Uh, are there going to be younger households that actually want to live that far out? And while I completely agree with the news story today that com- came from uh, the NAR report being released, that the suburbs uh, are indeed where uh, millennials are buying, we're finding that they're really buying and preferring to be in closer-end suburbs. Um, and so they essentially are trying to make a trade-off. They, they like location, they like the urban feel, but they don't really um, you know, want to be that far out so that commuting ends up eating up a, a huge share of their life. So 
there are certain places in the country where that phenomenon was that sprawl phenomenon was much bigger and and those are the places that I would probably worry the most about. Do politics and political leanings does that have an influence on um housing decisions and why? Well, thankfully, uh generally no. There's not there's not a tight correlation between presidential election years and what happens in the housing market. Actually, interestingly, historically, uh, election years tend to be slightly better uh, in terms of sales and prices, and I think it's principally because the Federal Reserve and others are trying not to play favorites, so you tend to have less volatility in things like mortgage rates uh, in in election years. Uh, There's no question that I'm sure the rhetoric impacts consumer confidence and that sort of thing, so that people who are on the cusp um, of considering them buying or selling may may decide to hold tight. But fundamentally, what drives demand for housing is life, uh, life events and life changes. And I don't, I don't know about you, Tim, but not once have I ever factored into who I thought was going to be in the White House four years from now uh, on whether or not uh, now is a good time for me to buy. I, I bought homes because I got a new job, because I moved to a different place, because we got a second kid. You know, it was never based on uh, what party is is uh, in in the White House or uh, or anything remotely connected to politics. So, I, I think most people feel that way. And again, this year we're coming off of a year where the people who weren't able to buy were frustrated by simply not being able to find a home that they could get. Uh, and it's not like their uh, their demand has been uh, quenched uh, by what we were able to do last year. So. Uh, I don't. I don't think they they care at all um, who's going to end up uh, winning the election. Um, so let's talk a little bit about as we round the bend today. Well, let's talk a little bit about the upper, you know, the luxury market. Maybe beyond the luxury market, kind of like the you know, big properties in Manhattan and around LA, and you know, the the luxury type stuff. That market seems to have again. This is a trend you and I talked about last year. But that market seems to have kind of leveled off, and in some cases, basically this. You know, generally speaking, a seller with a $10 million house uh, doesn't have to sell. So if it doesn't sell, they just take it off the market, uh, opposed to lowering the price. But it does seem like there's a lot of stagnation in, in that market. Is that some a long-term trend, or is that what do you see there? Yeah, I think. Well, well, first of all, we probably had slightly, uh, slightly skewed overbuilding in higher price points in condominiums and apartments over the last couple of years because it was easier for developers to pencil that uh, activity and to actually get financing uh, to do it. And so you have this weird shift where multifamily construction has been at 30-plus year uh, levels, yet single-family has has barely uh, started, started its recovery. And where the lion's share of that development has taken place has been at higher uh, rent prices, but also in the condominium market, in very specific markets like Los Angeles and and Miami uh, and and New York City. And some of that demand were were the very things that we were discussing earlier, like foreign demand uh, that that condominiums offer a certain appeal to, not just because of the the luxury lifestyle, but but also because it's easy uh, to have a turnkey place that you can go to for only a couple of times a year, and it's uh, typically easier to buy and sell. Um, so I, I do think that there's going to be a shift away from how uh, construction was dominated in those areas, and uh, we're, we're, we're not likely to see as much of that kind of construction come onto the market. 
Um, however, I will say one thing that's been potentially holding it back is everyday people have actually had a harder time uh, buying condominiums in the last several years because of uh, how onerous and difficult it is uh, to get uh, mortgages uh, f- specifically for condos. Uh, the FHA rules essentially made it nearly impossible to get an FHA loan for a condominium. And so for places where condos actually represent an affordable alternative, that part of the market has also been gone, but now we're starting to see positive changes on that front. So those two might counterbalance a little bit, but fundamentally it's it's really hard to turn $3 million uh, penthouse condominiums into a affordable condominiums. So that's that's likely to where to be where we're we're going to see more weakness. So there you go, listeners. Um, I didn't hear any reason from Jonathan Smoke to feel pessimistic about the uh, economy or the market. So you guys can listen to this interview again and again and again. And Jonathan, you actually you come out with some fantastic white papers and reports and, and whatnot. So if someone wanted to deep dive into some of the things you and I just kind of touched on, where could they get more information from you? Uh, go to Realtor.com uh, or follow me on Twitter on Smoke on Housing. I've got a piece coming out today on where mortgage rates are likely to head. Uh, and actually, I think that that's a net positive, especially for this year, uh, for, for the housing market. Uh, but that's, you know, all the things I do, plus uh, fun playlists, music. Uh, actually, I have a video coming out in a few weeks we're going to post on, on Realtor.com that also helped to essentially, uh, you know, lighten the negativity and, and think about uh, the economy and housing in a positive way. Listeners, a lot of the stuff that you guys are allowing to take root in your minds that's adversely affecting, not in all cases, but in some cases your mindset, is because of it's a political election year. Uh, do yourself a favor and go media-free, media-free life, not just a media-free morning. Literally purge yourself of all that crap. Don't allow it to affect your mindset. You've just heard from Jonathan, and we've given you now access to the tools to go and research this more yourself. There's no reason to believe that we're not at the very beginning stages, as we've been saying for the past three years, of a long-term real estate boom. So guess what? If you're not experiencing that personally, if you're not experiencing that kind of momentum now, then, you know, Look at your look at what you are or aren't doing. Look what you are or aren't action-wise, what, what actions you're taking. Take this on yourself. Stop looking for, you know, some external reason to not work. And that's what negative news is all about. You guys are becoming skeptics, some of you. Most of you, obviously, are having the best years ever. Um, believe that you're just at the very beginning of a, a long-term boom. Take the actions around preparing yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and then ideally financially to make the most of it. Remember, guys, this business is all about being of service to other people. That really is the bottom line. Um, and when you're having the mindset as you're, you know, you're here to help other people, if that's your number one thought in your mind, everything else sort of just flows. Mr. Smoke, I really sincerely appreciate you being of service to all of our listeners today and all the contributions you've made to the real estate industry. I always like interviewing you, you uh, because uh, unlike a lot of the other economists I've had on here before, you make things really easy to understand for dummies like me. So I really appreciate it, and thanks for being my co-host today. Thanks, Tim. You're no dummy, though. Oh, too soon to tell, I think. <laughs> you, have, you have a fantastic day, and listeners will talk with you on the radio tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. 
Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.